The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're delighted to have you with us. It's a chilly day here in Atlanta and uh, I hope wherever you are it's a little bit warmer and uh, you got some sun out. But it's a, a little cold, but we welcome you to Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And our host, Phil Forsberg, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg's on the line with us. Good morning, Phil. Good morning, Phil. Okay, well, Phil will join us in just a second, I'm sure. But before then, we're going to do what we normally do, which is uh, take a moment out to remember all of our veterans and those that gave the ultimate sacrifice with just a moment of thought. Thank you, and we do uh, bless those that have been with us for so long and uh, those that raised their hand and then gave the ultimate sacrifice in one way or the other. With that being said, we also, as you got a clip of just a second ago, also start the show out with our favorites, and that's a good Jody. And we can all do it. And I was with some uh, uh, veterans this weekend, and uh, we all agreed that uh, we still like those Jodies. And they get that, get your heart beating, and uh, we're ready to go. So good morning, Phil. You doing okay? I'm well, David. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. You're loud and clear. Four by four. Good, good. So, well, yeah, I, I also enjoy a good Jody. Oh, yeah. I think they're, uh, you know, it's just like everything else. I wonder how far back the Jodies go. Uh, I would guess almost from day one, wouldn't they? Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, um, throughout history, there have been people like to sing when they're doing hard work. And, uh, you know, I know the sailors had their sea shanties and... Uh, you know, of course, uh, when there was slave labor in the United States, you know, they sang while they did their work, trying to keep their mind off of their misery. And it's a little bit similar, I guess, with uh, with soldiers, you know, having to run and exercise and things. Um, 
they just and march you know march long distance is a way to you know there was a time when we didn't have radio and people sang for entertainment sure I I wasn't there, believe it or not, but I do. <laughs> I've heard rumors of that, and uh, at at the same token, I can remember even as a kid staring at the radio like it was going to do something. But we I was at my grandparents, and uh, that was before TV really, and so <laughs> we, my sister and I would stare at the radio and listen to the shadow. Only the shadow knows for sure. <laughs> But, you know, I'm not sure whether I like those days better or these days better, but uh, the point of our story is we're going to keep people remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. It uh, was a very, and it's, it had proven to last much longer than anybody had ever anticipated, but the Gulf War... Uh, has gone on and in some ways gone on and on. But um, I think uh, you've got some stories today that uh, I think everybody will find interesting. I, I know I do. And, uh, uh, you know, I, like I said, I was with some veterans this weekend, and uh, <laughs> I thought we were going to make it without one story. But once you get one guy telling a story, then the other guy has to tell the story too. And... Uh, I loved it. I I just I love hearing the stories and uh, the different experiences that uh, men have had uh, as they serve their country. So with that, Phil, uh, I'm going to turn it to you to uh, be our storyteller today. All right, I'll spin a yarn for you. <clears throat> and sometimes I take the long way around the barn, so just be patient. Um, we. Um, you know, I learned to fly helicopters first in the Army. And, uh, of course, their place where they taught... They used to teach it, you know, during the Vietnam War. They, you'd start out at Fort Walters, Texas, uh, out near Mineral Wells. And then uh, after you'd mastered the, the little ones, then you'd go to, to Fort Rucker, Alabama, to uh, to finish up. And um, <clears throat> You know, Phil, but, uh, i, I got to interrupt for one second. I bet... A lot of folks don't know where Mineral Wells is, but I happen to be one of the ones that does. You weren't too far from Waco, Texas. And um, I know I've been to Mineral Wells. My family, I had family in Mineral Wells. And uh, there used to be a river outside Mineral Wells that we'd go wading in. And uh, I know exactly where Mineral Wells is. Yeah, so, um, but I didn't go to Mineral Wells because time i'd gone to flight school in 1983 they had moved everything to fort rucker and uh <clears throat> they had uh they had closed down fort walters some years previous but um when we, we would fly uh, you know at uh, at certain points there were at least a couple of days when they had us going out solo and to to the instructors of Fort Rucker, what that meant solo was that you you'd have an army helicopter and you'd have basically two students in it. You weren't by yourself, <clears throat> and you go out and, and fly and practice the things you've been taught, just to give you a little confidence that you could do it without an instructor. And uh, but I remember what they told us. Um, they said, "Don't you guys go out there 
chasing cows uh, in the farmlands of uh, southeast Alabama because, you know, the farmers, well, we used to fly with big, bright numbers painted on the side of our aircraft so that we could be identified, uh, all the uh, farmers around southeast Alabama and uh, southwest Georgia knew uh, how to get a hold of the folks at Fort Rucker and report whatever we'd been doing with our helicopters. Uh, by the so, way, was that uh, were you flying Bells? Uh, well, at the time I was flying Hueys, UH-1, Huey Bell helicopters. And uh, so what I've discovered uh, was, uh, and this is not from trying to chase them or anything, but, you know, if you'd be going to a landing zone out in a field somewhere and there were cows nearby, uh, the, the cows in uh, southeast Alabama uh, basically had been so used to helicopters, they, they didn't run. When you come, you'd have to get pretty close to them to get them to move, and they didn't, they kind of just kind of walked away if you come over by them. But, um, but, uh, so that, that wasn't really any, uh, fun. So, but, uh, <clears throat> later I moved to, uh, uh, my unit at Fort Hood, Texas, and, uh, we'd go out. And, and fly. Uh, I can remember flying under night vision goggles. You could land um, in, in a field, and uh, there'd be deer uh, on the perimeter of the, of the field, and uh, you'd land without any lights on and just using your night vision goggles. And these deer, you know, they they wanted to run, but they didn't know which way to run. So they would just kind of stand and stare at the noise coming from somewhere in the blackness that they couldn't see and uh, it was kind of interesting because daytime you know they'd run away if you come by uh, and uh, then <clears throat> we did some exercises out in, in West Texas uh, and, in Terrell County and out around the Big Bend and uh, what I noticed then is if you're in a flight of you know three or four helicopters uh, you know we would practice flying the low ground and so we'd be in these creek beds uh, and if you were not the number one helicopter, but you're number two or three in trail, you would just see an amazing amount of uh, uh, deer that were out there. And you wouldn't think that that kind of environment would, would support many deer, but it did. As we went down these creek beds, uh, you know, the lead helicopter would alert them. And you just see these deer in huge herds, 30, 40 deer you know, running out of these creek beds, and, you know, we, they were kind of fun to chase around. Even out there, I had chased um, some, uh, I found some pronghorn antelope out there in West Texas, and uh, some, uh, they had these sheep that they had brought in from uh, from North Africa. They thought it was going to be a great thing for uh, bringing hunters out there. They brought in these Barbary sheep, uh, and there were these just great herds of these things that, you know, lived in the desert out there. And I chased them with my helicopter. And, <clears throat> you know, it was pretty fun. Uh, one of our, on uh, one of our exercises out there, um, somebody was chasing a, uh, a, uh, a deer and it, it ran into a fence and broke its neck. And these guys came down, snatched it up, brought it home, and, and we cooked it. Uh, but, uh, oh, but you know, uh, even at, at Hood Army Airfield in Fort Hood, Texas, near Killeen, uh, 
I'd be out there in my little OH-58, the little scout helicopter, and then I was single pilot, and you'd have a, you'd see a jackrabbit running around in the grass, and you just kind of chase him around on the sod between the runway and the taxiway there. You could wear out a jackrabbit pretty quick with a helicopter, but <laughs> I never, uh, you know, after some time in helicopters, I switched over to fixed wing flying, and I thought, well, I'll never, I'll never chase an animal with my fixed wing airplane. Well, <clears throat> we got a sign out to uh, for Desert Storm. We we got a sign to uh, this place near Dammam, Saudi Arabia, and we set up, and we were getting ready for the festivities that would uh, happen after the first of the year. And we had a training area, a block of airspace that was all reserved for us out to the uh, west of of Daman. And uh, I went out there with with an instructor pilot. The the Mohawk typically just had one set of controls for the pilot at the left seat. Uh, and the observer was in the right seat. He didn't have controls, but had the um, ability to uh, put a set of controls in that right seat uh, in case you were receiving instruction. And uh, so at this point, I was out there with a, uh, with our instructor. His name was Dick Scodden. And uh, uh, so <clears throat> we had a maneuver that we were supposed to practice. It was called the orthogonal break. And uh, the way this was done, well, the the reason for the orthogonal break would be, uh, you know, we were unarmed uh, observation airplanes, surveillance airplanes, really, and um, the uh, so uh, you know the big threat to us would be uh, you know enemy fast movers coming in to take us out because we were out collecting information about what was going on on the ground. And um, so uh, the the orthogonal break was our getaway maneuver, and um, of course we were under the uh, observation of AWACS while we were out there. And so, um, if an enemy aircraft was coming to engage us, we uh, <clears throat> they would give us a certain code word, and uh, we were supposed to uh, do this orthogonal break, which was designed to get us uh, down. Uh, out of altitude down to pretty low level uh, and then we would uh, escape south uh, and let uh, our combat air patrol deal with the uh, enemy uh, aircraft well uh, so the orthogonal break was uh, where you would uh, basically put the airplane into an aileron roll uh, and it you know, it would be turning about its axis, and eventually it would become uh, inverted. And uh, the the Mohawk uh, had the characteristics when when it that thing rolled inverted, the nose was real heavy, and uh, it would start to go into a descent. And the uh, so the idea of the orthogonal break was that you'd start this aileron roll either left or right, whichever way it was away from the enemy, and. Um, <clears throat> And you would continue that once you rolled inverted. You keep it going until so you'd be going round and round and round. And uh, at a certain point, that airplane would be pretty much uh, 
pointed straight at the ground and you're kind of rotating around this axis and uh, somewhere around 50 feet off the ground we were to be wings level and uh, and we'd probably be somewhere over 300 knots at that point and then uh, just escape across the ground uh, to the south and uh, call in and let the fast movers our fast movers know that we were being engaged well <clears throat> so we went out to this training area. It was all clear for us to maneuver in and do our uh, various uh, maneuvers. And so uh, Dick, uh, he, he told me, uh, you know, we climbed up to about 15,000 feet. And uh, he said, all right, I want you to, you know, show me an orthogonal break. And uh, so I did one, you know, and coming down and uh, we scooted across the ground pretty good and he said well that that wasn't bad he said let me let me show you one you know so he we got up back climbed it back up to altitude and he did one for me and then uh he said okay try one more here let's see how you do so i brought it back up to fifteen thousand feet again and uh i started into this uh this corkscrew toward the ground and uh you know while we were on a descent, I noticed uh, there was a herd of wild camels. And uh, so I planned my, uh, when I got straight and level, I planned to go straight across the top of this uh, herd of wild camels. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I got leveled off at about 300 knots and 50 feet off the ground. And we went through and I, I looked out my left side window and I saw these camels were all running to beat the band as fast as they could. I looked down the left side of my airplane, and there's some guy in a bed sheet hanging on to one of these camels, trying to hold on for dear life. <laughs> uh, what turned out, this, this was not a herd of wild camels. It was somebody's camels. Of course, Dick looked over and saw him, too, and he, he said to me, let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't know if that was maybe the king's brother or something uh, out there with his herd of camels. Yeah. So uh, I tell you what, yeah. getting the you know almost like a, a controlled stall and getting fifty feet off the ground—that's closer than I want to be. Well, that was high altitude in helicopters, but an airplane is pretty low. Yeah. I. Uh, wouldn't want to be there even at uh, whatever you said, 30 knots or whatever, 50 knots. I'd, still, that's not... Uh, and just how many rolls would you do going down, you reckon? Oh, I can't remember. Probably five or six. Hmm. You'd be in a pretty good rate of descent. No, thank you. But I appreciate you doing it. Yeah, that was a good one. And then another maneuver we had in the Mohawk was... Uh, was called the tactical pitch up maneuver. And this was not really that useful in Desert Storm, but uh, the folks who'd flown the Mohawk in Vietnam, they uh, they used it because, you know, when you're lined up for the approach, you're kind <clears> of <throat> low and slow, and, you know, straight and level, you're a pretty good target. And of course, in Vietnam, the insurgents were everywhere, and so <clears throat> they'd be close into these landing strips, and, uh, so the idea of the uh, tactical pitch-up was to cross 
the uh, the intended landing point at about 300 knots and 50 feet off the ground, and then um, as you uh, cross that landing point, you pitch up 30 degrees and you roll to the right um, 45 degrees, and uh, of course you you pull the power off, and so you're using all your speed to climb up there, and when you got to uh, your your pattern out to about 1,500 feet, you'd keep that that bank coming in around, and you'd uh, you'd drop your landing gear, you'd extend your flaps, and you'd kick out the speed brakes, and you'd come around. It would just be one circle, and then now you'd be descending uh, back. And as you rolled wings level, you'd come over that landing point. That was a pretty exciting little maneuver there. Yeah, I guess. And at all this point, were you being shot at, probably? Yeah, well, I, I wasn't shot at. You know, we didn't have insurgents in Saudi Arabia. Though. Or no, not in Saudi Arabia. But <laughs> in Vietnam, yeah. In Vietnam, yeah. Uh, well, that that's interesting. And uh, how... Uh, how were the how were the landing strips in uh, Saudi Arabia? Well, um, they were pretty good, actually. Um, now I don't know if uh, this is true or just urban legend, but <clears throat> when we were uh, when we were there, they told us, you know we uh, King Fahd International Airport in Damam is a big, you know. Two eleven thousand foot runways, concrete, three hundred foot wide, and uh, uh, I think they're anyway they were they were big, and uh, two parallel runways, and they, uh, they were, you know didn't seem to be a town anywhere near there, and uh, of course the Saudis are pretty flush with money if they wanted to build an airport somewhere they could and they could build a pretty big one. Um, but uh, the the rumor that we have been told was that back during the days when, uh, just after the um, the uh, the hostage situation in Tehran, and uh, we weren't real sure what we were going to do, and we were sort of facing off with the Soviet Union about uh, the the oils oil fields of the Middle East. Uh, we were told that. The CIA had told the Saudis that you know this would be a good place for a big airport, and so they built it. And uh, it was big. It, yeah, everything, every place I landed, you know, they didn't spare the concrete there. <laughs> well, I guess they had enough sand to make it. You know what? Um, I'm told that they have to import the sand and aggregate they use for concrete because their sand is really suitable for it. Hmm. Um, but they sure made everything out of concrete there. Um, you know, wood was extremely uh, valuable. We <clears throat> we had ordered up some some plywood uh, to uh, make these bunkers that we dug into the ground, and these were like retaining walls for the for the uh, the bunkers that we had made. Uh, somebody was saying that 
you know, one one sheet of plywood there was uh, four by eight, a sheet of three quarter inch plywood was, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars. Gee. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it wasn't cheap. Well, it wasn't cheap. Of course, they, uh, they didn't have many natural daddy. resources for wood in Saudi Arabia, did they? No, <laughs> other than money. Other than money. <laughs> well, that's, I guess the way they looked at it, that was a natural resource coming, that's pumping right. out of the ground. Yeah, well, as far as wood there, not many things made out of wood. In fact, we have a saying that it uh, wasn't so bad there in Saudi Arabia because there was a pretty girl behind every tree. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just finding that tree. They probably had a lot of women stacked up behind that tree, so you, once you found the one tree, yeah. No, man. no, there's just, just one pretty girl behind the tree. Just one, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I imagine there were um, a lot of sayings like that and or rumors or, you know, or uh, now I'm sure you never flew over anything and came back and reported uh, you found the tree. No. I think we had one palm tree down in our motor pool area. Huh. Well, that's about it. And what did it live off of as far as water went? I don't know. It must have had some pretty deep roots. Or was probably kind of thirsty. Oh. They had some, some trees there that could survive. It, it would rain there, you know, during the winter time. It rained. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it never turned the the desert into a, a paradise or anything um it just made it you know the the soil there was what i what we used to refer to it as cat box gravel um <laughs> just when it got wet it, it wasn't very nice hmm. but how many winters did you go through in saudi arabia just the one thank just, god <laughs> that was enough huh Yep, ninety to ninety one that winter, and uh, yeah, it was uh, <clears throat> it was uh, something, you know. I mean, we got there in September, and uh, it was plenty hot, one hundred and thirty degrees sometimes um, during the day. It'd cool off into the low teens, you know, and what I mean by like one hundred and fifteen. Um, at night, but uh, yeah, not uh, not nice. Mm-hmm. And then I can recall, I, we never even saw a bird for the first two months I was there. Uh, I guess birds had no reason to be out where we were. There's no water, you know, nothing lived there. But once once the rains came. You know, their life would spring about. You know, there'd be insects, and then the birds, and all sorts of other things would come. Hmm. Phil, we're going to take a quick break. I uh, sort of let everything slip, and uh, we missed our first break, but we'll take it, and uh, we'll be back with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg and more stories right after this. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. 
If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice@outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at firearmliquidationservice@outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, and we're back on America's Web Radio and remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm with our hosts, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg. And Phil's been relating some of the uh, stories. You know, when you were talking about how hot it was and the temperatures and so forth, what effect did that have on the on your planes on the planes right um <clears throat> well it didn't melt them but it felt like it was hot enough to do so <laughs> um <clears throat> that uh the heat uh well the the main thing it affected was performance of the aircraft um you know on a, on a hot day <clears throat> you don't get the same amount of lift uh over your uh wing that you get, uh, you know, on in colder days, um, and that's because hot air is less dense, and the density figures in to your equation for lift. So um, those hot days, you need more runway to get speed, so you get uh, the lift to safely take off. But with eleven thousand foot of runway, um, <laughs> it wasn't too hard there. <laughs> Yeah, after about the first five hundred, you were you should have been up. First five hundred feet. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know the Mohawk. It was uh, originally designed to be an airplane of a maximum gross weight of uh, twelve thousand five hundred pounds. <clears throat> and uh, as time had gone on, the uh, the Army had added more mission equipment to it, and. Um, and increased the uh, the the engine performance. And uh, by the time I flew it, uh, we were allowed to take it up to uh, eighteen thousand nine hundred pounds, I think. And then uh, when they realized that we were going to have to have the, our ferry tanks on there, uh, these auxiliary tanks under the wings, uh, in order to do the missions they wanted. Um, some folks back at uh, Aviation Systems Command uh, told us we could go to 20,000 pounds and um, and just uh, they had certain limitations like uh, 
don't uh, don't eject the, uh, the the auxiliary tanks if you had to. Don't eject them unless you're one uh, G level flight. You know, a couple other maneuvering things. They told us to stay when when our weights were up. But uh, I'll tell you, at twenty thousand pounds, this Mohawk. It's uh, you know, it's now close to twice its design max gross takeoff weight and uh, so you know I can remember the first time I took off an airplane at 20,000 pounds uh, stood on the brakes I pulled the pushed the power all the way up I released released the brakes and uh, rather than the you know characteristic you know acceleration it just kind of ambled forward <laughs> And uh, I can remember looking at airspeed and looking at the uh, the markings on the runway, and you know, telling me how much I'd use. And here I am thinking, "Come on, come on, come on!" <laughs> <laughs> but we, I made it off each time. Um, Sounds like you I, were almost running alongside it, pushing. Yeah, almost. Well, you know. Um, that's, it's interesting you say that. You know, in a, in a helicopter, uh, you need to get some forward speed for uh, so that you can out outrun your own rotor wash, basically, and you get what's uh, called effective translational lift. What, once you get into clean air with that uh, with that rotor system, you can feel the thing. You know, um, wanting to climb. But. Uh, during Vietnam, the fellows told me that uh, they would load these uh, Huey gunships up with mu- so much uh, uh, ammunition and and uh, and ordnance and fuel that they couldn't uh, they couldn't come to a hover. And of course, it was hot and humid in, in Vietnam, so that affected the performance there. But <clears throat> what they would do is they'd bring it up, you know, as much power as they felt like they could and get. Uh, you know, before exceeding any limitations, and then they get kind of light on the skids. And they would uh, the actually the the crew chiefs would uh, would be outside. They would be running alongside this uh, aircraft as it kind of <laughs> skidded its way down the runway, trying to get up uh, some speed. And you know, when they got <clears throat> to you know, uh, uh, they'd probably be going five or almost 10 miles an hour and these crew chiefs then would jump in and this thing would, would take off but it wouldn't <clears throat> they wouldn't hover hmm. and um, of course the Huey didn't have wheels so you had to kind of drag it along the ground like that to, to make it work and uh, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a Navy helicopter pilot and I was explaining to him that you know how they would do that in Vietnam and he said no, you never do something like that. Well, one of the fellows with us at the time had been a crew chief in the army in Vietnam, and he said, "Well, we sure did." <laughs> My buddy was—he was incredulous that anybody would fly like that, but that was kind of army aviation at the time. <laughs> and uh, you do what you have to do. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if they've got pictures of that. I'm sure they do somewhere. Maybe there's all sorts of things on the internet these days. Yeah, <laughs> that would be something. 
And some of those crew chiefs weren't exactly uh, physically in great shape, were they? Well, I guess they would be after running alongside a helicopter, but... Uh, yeah, that's why they had to go do PT in the morning and do those jodies and run. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, those guys are... Well, most Vietnam guys are 70-plus these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so... You know, but you look at these guys, you know, they're in Vietnam in these pictures and videos and all, and they're all strapping young guys with, uh, you know, pretty skinny. I mean, I was skinny back then, too, but not if you look at me now. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about the weather that you had to contend with in uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Uh what was the worst scenario? A bad sandstorm or, or the extreme Sandstorm was bad. <clears throat> um, the worst weather problem I ran into the whole time was I had come back from a mission. And it was, uh, uh, you know, we, in this mission we were trying to loiter as long as we could, but we got to a point where we had agreed if we got to this much fuel we'd go back. So I went back, and uh, the uh, a fog had gathered, uh, the likes of which I had never seen. And um, for some reason, the, uh, the the commander of the base was the same Air Force fellow that was in charge of the, the A-10s there. And uh, he, <clears throat> without telling anybody, had decided they would be in this security condition. Um unless they were launching or recovering A-10s. And I come come back, you know, with adequate fuel, and he, they had shut off the runway lights, they had shut off the, the navigational aids, and uh, shut off the radar, and uh, I had to try to do a visual approach as this fog was gathering. It was just, I mean, the thickest fog I'd ever seen. And, uh, <clears throat> well, long story but I did uh, I wound up shooting six approaches before I finally got in because of my caterwauling on the radio they had they had cranked up the runway lights um, to the point where I could just about hear them through the fog right so I was able to get in with a a radar guided approach which they had also turned on Um, but uh, that's and when I landed, I had so little fuel after six approaches that uh, that one of my engines shut down, and I need it was the fog was so thick I needed a truck, uh, a follow me truck to guide me to my parking spot because I could not see, absolutely could not see. You know, a lot of folks don't realize the what fog does as far as lights go, the the diffusion of a light in fog. And that can be very upsetting. Yeah. Um, all you have to do is drive, <clears throat> you know, on a foggy night, you know, with your headlights on and switch to high beams, and you'll see, you can see less with those high beams on than you could with the low beams on. Oh, yeah. And uh, you're coming in for an approach, and you've got lights on both sides, but if the fog's that heavy, it can... Uh, be a visual problem. I guess that's a nice way to say it. Yeah. 
Well, the Lord was with me that day. And I was certainly doing my share of praying. I bet. I bet. Of course, I did have the <clears throat> my ejection seat, uh, <laughs> and uh, the sergeant that was with me on that flight. You know, we had done um, five approaches, and now we didn't break out. And on on that fifth approach, we had a, a warning light come on saying we had twenty minutes of fuel left before that thing quit. And uh, so as as I executed my fifth missed approach, pushed power up and sucked the landing gear up, little Sergeant Francis looked over at me and said, well, what are we going to do now, sir? And I said, we're going to try this one more time. And if we miss on this next time, <clears throat> then I'm going to put it out, point it out toward the desert. And I said, I want you to use the upper handle, keep your back straight, and I'll meet you at the rack. <laughs> Because I never, I never used the term eject. I would never say that when we were off the ground, unless I needed for uh, for my right seater to eject. So, <clears throat> so that was sort of my briefing to him, and uh, and thankfully I never did have to have to eject. But there was a good friend of mine that same night was in a different unit, and uh, and he had a series of events that were very. Um, uh, unfortunate for him, and he did have to eject that very same night. Mm. And uh, we lost one one Mohawk out in the desert. Well, but better than okay. one pilot. Good friend of mine. Well, we're going to take our uh, last break before uh, we uh, conclude in about uh, 16, 17 minutes. So, Stay tuned, and I want to remind everybody that we have such great program programming here. Uh, we have a veteran story. We have all sorts of veteran shows as well as uh, medical shows where you'll find the truth in the doctor's lounge about what's going on. And uh, just uh, take a look at our programming, and we invite you to listen anytime, 24-7. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicide in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org. And find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. And want to change that just a little bit. Starting this Saturday, you'll be tuning in to uh, listen to Tom Cox and Richard Lanello. And uh, they're both fantastic. Uh, Tom 
is also with the AACA, so we'll be getting some inside information every now and then. But uh, tune in at 8 o'clock this Saturday and then followed by the Classic Auto Mall only on America's Web Radio. So now let's get back to Lieutenant Colonel Phil Forsberg, retired, and uh, talking about Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And some of your stories uh, can give a person goosebumps. (laughs) Well, yeah, I... uh was uh yeah there were some strenuous times there of course there was a, one time that <clears throat> i was up on my uh on my track and you know flying along the border now this is before the the air war started and uh the uh, <clears throat> uh we were right close close to the border and we knew that uh iraqi fighters could uh could engage us at that range without crossing the border and uh, and you know score a kill on us without uh, without ever crossing into Saudi airspace. But uh, <clears throat> so we were uh, of course we fly on autopilot because they wanted a nice gyro stabilized track that would uh, provide them the best imagery and uh, the uh, so. My uh, systems operator would be working there um, on the, you know, his imagery, and I was just kind of kicking back. I was, remember I was eating a Slim Jim <laughs> I received in a care package from home, and was uh, reading a novel, I think. <clears throat> and suddenly, my uh, AN APR thirty nine uh, radar warning indicator went off, and. Uh, it told me that I had uh, a friendly fighter at my uh, seven o'clock position, and uh, I became quite agitated. And <clears throat> was uh, listening for AWACS to give me the code word, to tell me to do that orthogonal break and get on out of there. And uh, finally, I saw this guy pull up in my uh, left rear, and he was uh, turned out to be a British. Uh, tornado flyer hmm. and uh, anyway he <clears throat> there had been an Iraqi coming toward me and uh, this fella you know the combat air patrol had gone up there and basically turned him off so um, I kind of waved to him and I didn't see any response from him but he just kind of peeled off uh, to the left <clears throat> went back to his combat air patrol duties and I remember the Mohawk was kind of an odd-looking airplane, and uh, some, I think he was trying to get a look at me. I was hoping he could read where on the tail it, st- it was stenciled on there, United States Army. And, uh, and uh, let's see, there was another aircraft, uh, uh, an Australian C-130 one time. We took off off the parallel runway from him, and uh, I heard him talking to departure control and asking, you know what was this airplane that he was seeing and they told him it was a mohawk he asked to talk to me on the radio and i said okay he said you know can we uh can we get closer and take some pictures of you and i said yeah okay and uh so he, they pulled up alongside us and you know i said well, what's going on over there to my 
Wright Cedar. He said, <clears throat> they're, uh, they're taking pictures of us. I think just, he thinks they look, that we look funny. I said, okay. I handed him my camera. I said, now you take some pictures of him. <laughs> so we did. But, uh, yeah, Mohawk was a good airplane. I liked it. That's good. That's good. All right. Are they still using it? Is it still in service? You know, um, I don't know how many Grumman made, probably three or 400 of them total. Um, the Army had several units. When I was in it, they had uh, four separate companies of them. A lot of them had been retired. Um, you know, some of the earlier models, the A models and B and C models, uh, <clears throat> had been retired. The, I was flying the D model, and um, we had, uh, well, let's see. I know the Israeli Air Force had one or two. Um, the uh, National Geospatial Geodetic Information Service, or whatever, they, they had one because it had uh, some pretty good mapping capabilities. Uh, I think Environmental Protection Agency had one. I think these are the ones they had gotten surplus. Maybe some uh, some uh, uh, forestry uh, had some. And uh, when uh, when they retired the Mohawk, I think they retired it in '95 or '96 from the United States Army. Um, they sold the ones that we had to the uh, Argentine Army, and uh, they operated them for a while. But I don't think they're in operation anymore. That's, uh, for folks that don't know, Grumman American is, I think, the long name for them, isn't it? And uh, they were always big, or they had been big, in the, uh, in the general aviation area. Private pilots, uh, you know, I, I did training on one of their, their Tigers, as a matter of fact, and uh, they made a good little plane. Yeah. Um, well, of course, Grumman, you know, they didn't start in general aviation. They started in, actually in naval aviation. And um, they made the, uh, oh, a number of cats. Uh, you know, the, the Hellcat, the Bearcat. Um, I think the F6F Grumman was the most... Uh, Accomplished at fighting, uh, shooting down uh, Japanese aircraft in the Pacific, um, and then of course uh, um, in the um, Vietnam era, they had uh, the A6 Intruder mm-hmm. and the EA6 uh, Prowler or Grumman aircraft. Um, the Hawkeye that flew from the uh, carriers it was it was like a seaborne. Um, AWACS aircraft, and then uh, and then they had their carrier onboard delivery system, which was sort of like a sort of like a, an E two, but uh, it, was, it was a Grumman aircraft that was sort of a, it was the only cargo aircraft that would land on carriers, hmm. and it would bring cargo and passengers uh, out to the fleet. And then, of course, one of their most iconic aircraft was uh, the Grumman F fourteen Tomcat which is uh, just a super state-of-the-art variable-wing geometry fighter that they had built for for the Navy. And um, 
they're all retired now, the Tomcats, but that was, was quite an impressive aircraft. And, um, yeah, we, we called it Grumman Ironworks because <laughs> they were some sturdy airplanes. You know, I don't know if kids are getting into it today. Uh, I know my son did, the, the one that's uh, the major in the Air Force. But the number, you know, uh, aircraft historians, uh, there have been so many different planes. And, um, you know, I ask about if um, in your training, if you'd, if you'd flown a bell uh, with a bulb-type bulb bell that uh, is basically all plexiglass, I guess, um, yeah, I think you're talking about the what the Army called the H-13. Which was always featured on MASH, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And there were, there were a few sort of in that uh, range. The, the Army called the H-13, I, call, I think they called it the Sioux. Hmm. Um, and the, um, there was another, another one similar to it that did... <clears throat> pioneered this concept of air ambulance and uh yep the uh the bell helicopters made a lot of uh, a lot of iconic aircraft for the vietnam war might have had something to do with uh lady bird johnson owning a controlling interest <laughs> uh more truth to that than you know well we don't want to get into this no ancient Texas politics now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to stay away from it sometimes, but uh, that wasn't all she controlled during Vietnam. But, yeah, again, that's ancient politics. And, uh, you know, it's uh, over the year or so that we've been talking, it, you've shown that you're obviously a aviation historian as well. Uh, you pull names out of your hat all the time that, uh, and I'm not, well, I, I just probably, uh, it probably could be considered an aviation historian because most, almost all of the military aircraft I ever flew are in museums now. <laughs> Hanging or on the ground? Some of each. Well, I guess, uh, one of the, uh, most impressive that I've ever seen was, uh, I think it's down in Florida, the uh, Blackhawk. Um, uh, the supersonic plane that... Uh, oh, oh, yeah, uh, Blackbird. Blackbird, yeah. SR-71. Yeah. And uh, what a plane. What a plane. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's two sides of uh, aviation history one is the plane and the other is the pilot and um, you know some of the stories of what pilots have done were absolutely miraculous you know that can't be done but they did it and uh, I find it fascinating and uh, you know I, I guess I'm sure you felt like this uh, you were assigned a plane right and uh, you sort of became Pilot and plane in one. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially your single pilot aircraft. 
that OH-58, you know, you didn't so much climb in as you strapped it on, you know, <laughs> became part of you. And same with the Mohawk. And I bet, like with cars, that if you got in it, uh, you cranked it, and you were either going down the runway or, or even in air. If you heard something different, you knew it. Yeah, surprises aren't generally good. No. Um, especially during those critical phases of the flight, which in the helicopter is pretty much the whole thing. Yeah. I, I've never figured out, as far as I'm concerned, helicopters shouldn't fly. There's just no way that big big prop going around in a circle that looks like a mixmaster upside down I don't think that thing should fly, but then again, I don't really understand jets either, so <laughs> what do I know? Well, I have flown a helicopter, single-engine attack helicopter, the Cobra. I've flown it from California all the way to Virginia. So, well, who did you shoot? That was, those, uh, were not, those were not shooting flights. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I never shoot, shot anybody. With a uh, with a helicopter, I shot a school bus with a anti tank missile that was had just been stuck out on a range out in California that uh, used as a target. Remember this old school bus? It just somebody probably got a don uh, a tax deduction for donating it to the, the naval range out there, and we got to fire an anti tank missile at it. And I bet it didn't take more than a couple, did it? Yeah, there's not a lot of armor on a um, school bus. No. <laughs> and I bet it jumped off the ground a couple of times. <laughs> I knocked it over. Ah. Well, you know, I've let time run away from me. And uh, as always, Phil, this has been interesting and and enjoyable. And, you know, you bring a whole different view of what you did and what the war was all about. And the bottom line is for everybody to remember Desert Shield and Desert Storm. That can't be a war that's overlooked. And uh, I appreciate it. And Lord willing, and it doesn't snow too much, we'll be back with you next week. All right, David. Thank you. Yes, sir. Take care. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.